The sermon text this morning is from Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. You know, the history of the church <clears throat> is filled with commendable women, not just in the Old Testament with Deborah and Jael and uh, Hulda, not even in the New Testament with Mary and Joanna and, and um, many others, Anna. Um, but the history of the church has been filled with commendable women. As you read even up through the um, history of the church, you have men and women co-laboring, co-suffering, um, remaining faithful, uh, even under great persecution and hardship. Well, today our text has one such commendable woman. Paul has highlighted her among the rest, this Phoebe. Now, you, when people get to Romans 16, generally what they do is just flip the page. I mean, you can't pronounce half the names. You don't know who they are. You can't say them, and so you just kind of move right on the 1 Corinthians. And, and yet, I think it'd be a mistake. Some think, though, it's just an add-on. It's kind of some fluff at the end. Some scholars actually think that it wasn't even part of the original letter. Well, I, I tend to disagree with that. I think that Paul began his letters with greetings and he ended his letter with greetings. Um, I think there's a lot of help in this chapter. In fact, one New Testament scholar said it's probably, probably one of the most instructional chapters in the entire New Testament. You may think that's a little bit of a stretch, but remember, this chapter will give us a unique picture into the social dynamic of the church. You wonder, how was the church really? How did they operate? How did they relate to one another? How were they with one another? Uh, this chapter gives us some of the insight into that. Now, next week we'll look at more of these names. There's about 33 names. It's not unusual to, in the ancient world uh, to greet people in the beginning and end of a letter. Uh, what I find unique about this is just the number of names. Definitely, that's unique. But also notice how he commends this Phoebe, this woman. He puts her at the top of the list. She's the first one. Uh, that gets mentioned and gets commended. Well, I, I just want to answer the question or try to ask the question, what makes her a commendable woman? Because I, I think I speak for the elders uh, that we want commendable women. Uh, women strong in faith and service, sacrifice and partnership with the gospel. And she becomes kind of an example for us. I, I'm hoping she will be for you. If someone were to write a letter commending you, what do you think they would say? I mean, would we get the ink shared as she did? So there's three things I want to say about Phoebe, but then I want to look at how do we as a church look at women. So first, uh, you see in the first verse that she is a woman of faith. Look with me in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at St. Crier that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. Now, uh, we don't do this anymore, write letters of commendation, but in the ancient world they did. And, and what they'd be doing is they'd send a person to a foreign city with a letter. You had to. They didn't have the facilities that we have, uh, the public hotels and so forth. And so you had to take a letter to someone that you knew and and 
evidence this is who I am. They didn't know what you look like. They didn't know where you're coming from. They didn't know your intentions. And so a letter would give authenticity. It would give genuineness. It would give trustworthiness. It also protected those people who gave hospitality, not to be taken in by some charlatan or deceiver. And so here Phoebe is carrying this letter in which Paul commends her. But notice how he commends her. He calls her a sister in the faith. He calls her our sister. And what's unique about this is that the gospel changes the dynamic of our relationships. I mean, what happens is when a person comes to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're born again. They're made a son or a daughter of God. So fundamental relationships shift. That's what Paul's driving at. She is a sister to us. And what's interesting is that she's our sister. Now, Paul is a man, she's a woman. Paul's Jew, she's Greek. But she's our sister. I mean, you think about the cultural and the gender differences there, but she's our, that's what the gospel does. The belief in the gospel just shifts the way we are to look at each other within the church of God. She's the sister in the faith. It really just amplifies what Paul had said to Timothy. If you were to study the first letter in Timothy, chapter 5, he would speak to the church. And in, in the first letter to Timothy, he's really instructing the church on how they ought to conduct themselves. And so what he, does, what he says is, those older men, you're to be like a father to the men who are younger. They're like sons to you. And the older women, they're like mothers. And the young women of the faith, they're like daughters to them. And, and, and between the men, they're like brothers and sisters. So Paul is giving us a new paradigm for how we, we relate to one another. Uh, so, so he's saying she's our sister. She's, she's one of us. She's in the faith. She's a faithful woman. But notice what else he says about her. He says that, uh, that they are to welcome her in a way worthy of the saints. So she's a saint. Now what is a saint? When I was growing up in the Roman Catholic tradition, a saint was, you had, to be, you had to be dead, you had to do something, and you had some monument or picture of you hanging somewhere in some church. Uh, when I came into Protestantism, I, I found that a saint was usually a, a woman with a very, very difficult husband. She's just a saint. And I never understood what does the Bible mean by saints. Saints are holy ones but they're made holy through faith in Christ. They've been adopted, they've been redeemed, they've been forgiven. They're set apart. They're different from the world. They live differently. There aren't hierarchical levels of saints. The Christian is a saint. The saint's a Christian, it's the same. There are no levels there. And she is called a saint. But what's interesting is the city this Sancrie, this city is a port city. Now, it was eight miles from Corinth, and Corinth we know was a, a wicked city. I mean, it's just filled with idolatries, uh, sexual liberties, had no limit. Well, Sancrie was a port to that city. We know ports are generally more decadent than the cities they're near. I mean, men come, they go, there's anonymity. Prostitution thrives there gambling, all kinds of criminal activity, occupies a port city more than other inland cities. But she's a saint in this city. Her, her name actually, Phoebe, means bright or shiny. It's like she's a light of faith in a very dark city. And Paul's commending her, in this city, 
of which we wonder if anything good can come out of it. She is a bright light of the gospel. She's a woman of faith. So I, I think the first challenge we take from this characteristic is it challenges our superficial complacency and faith. I mean, here she is. We're going to find probably an older woman, probably a widow carrying this letter to Rome, still engaged by faith in the gospel. She's a woman of deep trust in God. That is commendable. We desire here for women to be strengthened in faith, uh, to be knowledgeable in the scriptures, to have backbones of theological steel, to be trusting in the gospel, to be looking to the gospel for all things. A, a woman of strong faith is a sight to behold. You know, Mary Love was a, a young mother married to Christopher Love. He was a Welsh preacher back in the late part of the 17th century. Uh, he was a Welsh preacher under the, the hand of the English government. He was to be executed the next day for his preaching. Uh, she had four children, two had died. She was pregnant eight months. And so she writes this letter to her husband the night before he was to be executed the following day. I just took out excerpts from her letter to him. Here's what she says. Oh, that the Lord would keep you from having one troubled thought for your relations, that is, she and the children, I desire freely to give thee up into thy father's hands, and not only to look upon it as a crown of glory for thee to die for Christ, but as an honor to me that I should have a husband to leave for Christ. I dare not speak to thee, nor have a thought within my own heart of my unspeakable loss, but wholly keep my eye fixed upon the inexpressible and inconceivable gain. Thou leavest but a sinful mortal wife to be everlastingly married to the Lord of glory. When the messenger of death comes to thee, let him not seem dreadful to thee, but look on him as a messenger that brings thee tidings of eternal life. When thou goest to the scaffold, think that it is but thy fiery chariot to carry thee up to thy father's house. Let us comfort one another with these sayings. Be comforted, my dear heart. It is but a little stroke, and that thou shall be where the weary shall be at rest, and where the wicked shall cease from troubling. Remember that thou mayest eat thy dinner with bitter herbs, and yet thou shalt have a sweet supper with Christ that night. It's a woman of commendable faith. When you read that, you're just, you're moved. I want that faith. This is a woman of great faith. Women, we want you to be commended by faith. Faith in a risen Lord that will save, even in the worst of situations. This also, though, she challenges us in terms of our individualistic view of the faith. You know, Paul speaks about the church as a family. There is no New Testament example of someone who is outside of a deep, enmeshed, Love for the brothers and sisters in the church. Now, I know the rub with this, that the church is often, you know, an accumulation of people that you don't normally hang out with and you might not choose them. My dad used to say whenever we had squabbles in the family, he said, you can choose your friends, you can't pick your family. It's the way it is. Family often is marked. We like to gather around ourselves people that are like us, that think like us, act like us. 
And yet the family's different. This is the point, really. The point is that the church is a gathering of people who are unlike with one another, but love each other in demonstrative ways. So if you were to look at your last 60 days, have you engaged anyone in this church for lunch or for dinner or for coffee that is significantly different than you? Have you sought to find out about their faith? Have you thought to find out about their life? How maybe you could serve them or love them or help them along the way? If I were to look at your life in those past 60 days, what would I understand about your view of the church as a family? Not those that you have extended and, and long-term relationships with, drawing in people into your life, your brothers and sisters here in this room that you may not know too well. It's really, it, it's, it's commendable when we do that. It's born out of faith that we really are brothers and sisters, and we really are going to be spending eternity together. And the last thing I would say, too, is that about our faith is it does challenge us, those of us who have and have had lower views of women. I mean, Paul speaks to the high value and dignity of women by calling her a sister, by calling her a saint. I mean, Paul's often called in the secular world a misogynist. He puts women down, they say. I don't think the charge stands up to the evidence here. Uh, that he is commending her, he's valuing her, he's putting her at the top of the list. This is a saint to whom you ought to welcome in the Lord. He's lifting her up. It makes sense, right? If we are brothers and sisters, or I should say, if we have the same father, that does make us equal. I don't love my son any more than I love my two daughters. I love them the same. I can't imagine God would be any different. I can't imagine I'd be more balanced than God. So think about, in fact, when Keith was praying, he brought up Galatians 3.28. There's neither slave nor free, Greek nor Jew, male nor female. You are now one in Christ. I mean, think of the equal value here. So if someone were to commend or write a letter about your faith, how would they commend you? What would they say? If I were to write a paragraph on you in way of commendation, what would I say about your faith? She's a commendable woman of faith. But she's not just commendable because she's a sister in the faith. She's also a servant of this church at Sincrea. She is a servant there. Now this verse 2 here, verse 1 and 2, there is no small amount of ink that's been wasted on this verse, trying to understand. Is Paul saying here that she's a servant of the Lord in a general way, or is she a deaconess? There's a, a debate about that. I will say that, that it can be translated, this word diakonos, it can be translated either in a general way, uh, that is just a servant of the Lord. And we've already seen it in chapter 12, verse 7, that we have gifts of service. Paul is called a servant. Jesus is a servant to the circumcised. Even the government's called a servant of the Lord. Uh, but can, it can be used in a specific way as well. Three or four times in the New Testament, you see it, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, where he says, he writes to the elders and the deacons of that church at Philippi. You see it in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 to 13, about the qualifications of deacons. So which is it? Well, I don't think you can decisively know for sure in the passage. The reason I raise it with you right now and try to explain it in a little more detail is that some of your Bibles translate that word deacon as, excuse me, that word servant as deacon or deaconess. You'll see in the RSV, you see in the NIV at the bottom. And I want to try to explain that, why interpreters would, hmm, which way do we go on this sort of thing? It can't be determined from this text alone, but contextually, 
the majority, I would say, at least of late scholarship, would say she would have been a deaconess. The reason they say that is because because Paul uses a masculine form of the word deacon or servant for her, feminine, which would indicate a position. Or she's also called a, a deacon or servant of this specific church. Whenever the word deacon is used in a general sense, it would be a servant of the Lord. Here she's a servant of this church. So it would seem to indicate maybe more of a, an official position. But, but primarily, I think they look at her as one who's carrying this letter. Now, we think she's carrying the letter because she's the only one commended. All the other greeting that we're going to go through next week, they're all at the Church of Rome. She's the only one from this Corinthian church. That's why we probably think she was a widow, didn't travel with her husband. She probably had servants with her because a woman wouldn't travel alone, but there's no one else commended. And if there were other people from that church, they would have been commended. But she was carrying this letter. Can you imagine what she thought when she was carrying this letter? A letter of this significance? I love the way one author said it. She had in the folds of her garment the seeds of the Reformation, right? I mean, Paul, the whole Reformation was birthed out of Romans chapter 1. She carried this document that has fed us for close to two years here alone. She carried it. Incredible. It's funny how the Lord would give the word of the resurrection to women, and he gives the word of Romans to women to carry. It's really significant. She is truly a commendable servant. Now, at the end of the day, whether she was a deaconess or not, she was a quintessential servant. And that's, I think, what Paul would want us to walk away with, that she was a servant of great note. And when you look at her and her service, and we'll look at a little bit later about the nature of her service, uh, when you look at that, it does challenge the way we kind of make a hierarchy of the minister. We use the term the minister to usually refer to the senior pastor, lead pastor, someone in vocational ministry. It's just not true to the New Testament. You're all servants, at least if you're a Christian here, you're a servant. Everybody is a servant of the Lord. We also tend to underestimate some forms of service you know, versus the higher forms of maybe speaking or singing, the more public gifts. Uh, please, let's put a fork in that. You know, a cup of water is not forgotten by the Lord. I mean, there are many people here. I'm so thankful for the nature of the women of Christ coming to church doing all kinds and levels of service, some of which we don't even know about. But the church is functioning because of their work. So we want to be careful not to, to think, well, it's only this kind of ministry that qualifies for something that God pays attention to. Not true. I just happened to come across this little short bio of a woman named uh, Ellen uh, Raynard. Uh, I never knew her. I don't know, perhaps you've never heard of her. She was born in 1910 in London. Uh, She had born in a nonconformist family, which means, you know, kind of a religious family, but not in accordance with the Church of England, but still a religious family. Came to Christ at age 16 from a friend who was distributing Bibles. They both got the fever. One died. She didn't. She continued living, and she continued to walk as a Christian. Uh, she got married, had some children, lost two in their teens, but continued to minister now in this Bible society. She would just be handing out Bibles through a church. Uh, she began to write for the Bible Society. 
Uh, and, then, and then, of course, her life continued on in what we would think is a very mundane way, and she kept beginning to minister, or kept continuing to minister, moved back to East London, wanted to minister to the radically poor of that city, uh, but the radically poor were not ministered well by the, by the super rich. And so it was her idea to begin to think, well, we're going to get these women in working classes uh, in the working class, kind of in the, in the tier between the super rich and the super poor, we're going to train them. And we're going to train them to minister to those in the, in the very, very difficult regions of East London. And here she was a missionary pioneer working as a woman with women to women. We don't even know her. She's fallen off the pages of history. And yet she would be a great servant to Paul, who he would commend if he had known her. Uh, so, so if someone were to write a letter about your service to the saints, what would they say? If they had to just write two or three sentences in commending you in the service that you do, what would they say about you? Well, the last characteristic I'd like to touch on is just your partnership in the gospel. You see that in verse 2 where he says these words. He says, uh, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a, in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. She's a patron, a patroness, a, a protectress, right? a benefactress. She was a woman of means. It implies wealth or financial security. And, and she was aiding people. To be a patron means that you're caring, you're giving aid. She's using her prosperity. She's using her position. Perhaps she's using her wisdom or business acumen. And she is helping people in the church. She is aiding them. She's giving practical aids. It it's, would be interesting to imagine all that she did. We're not told. We're just told patron. But within patron is just perhaps a litany of things that she did. But notice she wasn't just a patron of the church. She was a patron of Paul. She wasn't just locally concerned. She was globally concerned. She, she probably supported Paul, both in the writing of the letter and perhaps in funding his trip to Rome. She was a patron. She had that global, that local desire to partnership in the gospel. That's why he's saying, welcome her in the Lord to receive her, to give her anything that she needs. This isn't kind of a, a good southern hospitality where we provide for accommodations and help her make some connections. This is a Christian hospitality. We receive her as one of us. We receive her as a Christian, as one who follows Christ like us, who has been redeemed by the same grace. She's using all that she has for the gospel, for the advancement of the gospel. If you're a student of church history, uh, you probably know the name, the, the Countess of Huntingdon. Uh, in the 18th century, she was in the royalty of England and a wealthy, wealthy woman. Well, she befriended both John Wesley and George Whitfield, the two great evangelists of that century. And she used her money and her influence to not just fund the gospel, but to get the gospel preached in corners of the royalty that it would have never reached. She ended up in her life establishing probably close to 100 chapels, a training center for ministers in Wales, many different places in America, streets named after her in, in Asheville. There's a college, Huntington College in Alabama. Uh, she used her life well. She asked that no biography be written of her. 
She didn't want any attention for herself. She just saw the things that were given to her were for the purposes of God. And, and she dedicated her life to this. What's interesting is, and this shows you the power of a life, she, when she died, it was said of Cardinal Newman, a Roman Catholic cardinal, by the way, he said these words. He said, she devoted herself, her means, her time, her thoughts to the cause of Christ. She did not spend her money on herself. She did not allow the homage paid to her rank to remain with herself. She was pivotal in this evangelical revival of the, of the 18th century. I mean, it really does challenge us in what are we doing with what we have? We are a prosperous nation. We are a comfortable nation. What are we doing with the prosperity that we have, with the position that we have? What are we, how are we leveraging for the sake of the gospel all that God has put into our stewardship? In Acts, it says he appoints the times and the places in which you'll live. He's given you the gifts that you have. He's entrusted to you the things that you now own temporarily. How are they being used? If I were to write a letter of commendation to you about your partnership in the advancement of the gospel, what would, it, what would I say? What would I write? Uh, she is a woman that is to be commended. Uh, this Phoebe, strong in faith, sacrificial in service, and, and a patron to many, a a partner in the gospel, Paul says. Putting her at his level in terms of that partnership of the gospel. Yeah, she's not to be revered, I don't think. I hope you don't take away from this sermon. Well, let's stand in awe of Phoebe. She's a servant like us. Has the same spirit like us. Same grace of the gospel saved her like us. But she is an example for us. And, and if there is a, a degree of perhaps conviction, well, then let it yield results of repentance and change. And if it's in, encouraging to you, then they may look at her and study and say, thank you, God, give me, give me the same grace. Well, th that's the word on Phoebe. And I just wanted to spend, because Paul kind of seems to highlight her, I just wanted to highlight her. But let me just give you a few takeaways on how we as a church can respond to women. Because I think the church has often failed to do this. First thing is that we ought to commend women. We as a church ought to commend women. Commend the work that they do. Now, of course, I mean commend all workers. But for our purposes today, to commend the service that the women do to speak thankfully for their work. I'm thankful to the women of this church. They, they do an amazingly good job keeping things going. Uh, do we thank them? Uh, in the last 30 days, have you given a word of thanks to anyone? Not a one-off, but wouldn't it be unbelievable as a church if we were marked by a certain gratitude that was just part of us? Not something that I'm going to do tomorrow, but it just kind of flows out of us. Thank you for how you have served us in the nursery or in teaching Sunday school. Uh, I, I think the church as a whole, I, I, think, I think it would glorify God uh, walking in a degree of regular gratitude. Uh, but I would also say the church needs women to minister. The church needs women at all levels. And then when I say that, listen, this church has been founded, of course, in, a in a, what I would argue a scriptural understanding that the elder 
or the shepherd, and we would see those terms as interchangeable. That is a position to be occupied by a male. I say that because in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. This isn't because men are somehow smarter or better teachers at all. It's that God has designed men and women with different roles in the church. Now, when Paul wrote that in Timothy, he was speaking to the church. He says, when you gather together. So in chapter, chapter 3, he says, this is to establish our conduct as a household of faith. Uh, so th this isn't to say that women never teach anything. Women do teach. They teach children. They teach women. I've been taught a thousand things by my wife. There are different venues and different contexts. You can't just say women don't teach. Women do teach. But in the context of the pulpit, the doctrinal, the directional teaching for the gathered community of faith, Paul says it's to be a male. Different functions. We see the same dynamic in the Trinity. You see equality with diversity between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But to say what Paul said basically leaves all the other ministries open to women. They're to be occupied by men and women serving God. Now let me just give you a few examples. Handy, care of the handicapped, sick, socially estranged, prison ministry, youth, sports, women involved in counseling, audiovisual, teaching, music, evangelistic, drama, social, assisting pastoral care, ministry of prayer, ministry of missions, global and local. Those are all open. We need women to minister. You know, I talked to Ann and, um, Robertson, who heads up our nursery, just as an example. She has over 100 women serving in the nursery. 100 women. That's, that's a lot of women. We could use 10 more if uh, just on the heels of taking advantage of a, a point right now. We could use about 10 more. Um, if you're not in there, you could ask yourself. It'd be a good response to the sermon. But think about that. A, a, a 100 women. What would happen? It is indisputable that if the women just left one day, we'd be in dire straits. But there's probably a dozen or more women who are in various teaching uh, capacities and leading and facilitating discussions, not to even mention all the discipleship and the other fellowship and other service parts of this church. We need women to minister. We need to highly value them. Uh, we'd be in pieces without it. And then thirdly, I would say that the church needs to handle women in ministry issue with a deal, a, a good bit more charity. You know, there's been a dust-up on the internet in the past couple days, and, and a certain um, very prominent male preacher um, spoke in what I would say is probably a harsh way uh, with a person, that he, with a woman, who has probably a different view on some of these issues of women in ministry. And it was, I felt unhelpful, it was unnuanced, it, it, it really exacerbated an already difficult discussion. I, I think as a church we need to speak with charity. We have different views in this church about, you know, what might be a role for women or not. Uh, but these, to me, are the disputable matters that we can have. You know, there's, there are differences between soft complementarians and hard complementarians. Some of you draw some deep lines in the sand. This is what I do, this is what she does. Others of you, the lines aren't so deep. But at a minimum, we, walk, we want to walk with charity and grace with one another and not make this a battleground like it's a, compared to the deity of Christ or the atonement of Christ. 
we want to be gracious, nuanced, thoughtful in our responses to these issues. Uh, particularly because I don't think the church has had a good history on how we've treated our women. I think we've often been very negligent of that. And, and then I'd say fourth, I think the church needs to be aware of both cultural and traditional influences getting us off track. What do I mean by that? Well, of course, we live in a culture now uh, that, is, that is desirous, feminism, even in its softest form, uh, is desirous of eliminating differences between men and women. Now listen, the, the right for equal pay, for equal job, I'm in full agreement of that. The equality of women in the workplace, in the home, I'm in full agreement of that. But the culture wants to eliminate the very differences that God has instituted between the genders. I don't think we're wise to follow the winds of the culture. I think we stick with what God has said about the nature of men and women and how he has organized his church. So we have to be aware of that. I think we also have to be aware of the traditional influences. That is, we never had a woman doing that in my church when I was growing up. Uh, we never had a financial secretary who was a woman in my church growing up. And, and so we begin to add prohibitions to where the scripture doesn't prohibit women. And what we're doing is the scripture already pro provides some fences for us. When we add prohibitions that the scripture doesn't prohibit women to do, we just put another fence within the fence. This is really the basis of legalism. This is what Israel did. Uh, they may have had good motives. Well, we don't even want to get close to the fence. We'll build another fence within the fence. No, 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 that is legalism. We don't want to prohibit what the Bible doesn't prohibit. It's a good discussion we can have on it, but we definitely don't want to fall prey to that. And, and then fifth, I would just say, the church needs to cultivate, call for, pray for women of strong faith, deep service and partnership in the gospel. You know, you may ask, well, Tom, where's the gospel in these two verses? And I would say, well, smack in the heart of Phoebe. Phoebe's ministering out of a motivation of the gospel. What would move her to use her money, to use her time, to use her resources? but other than her love for Jesus Christ. Women, I would challenge you to deepen and develop your love for Jesus Christ. Consider the one to whom you'll behold as a groom, the one to whom it will give you a full inheritance for all of your work. I, I want to encourage you. She was fueled by it. I, I think about in 2 Corinthians when Paul writes, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, Therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's our motivation. He, for our sake, died and was raised. So his love for us is what's to control our decision-making. We don't any longer live for ourselves. So ladies, I want to commend your hard work. Men, I want to challenge you, particularly those of you who are husbands, be commending of what you see in your wives. Encourage them over the gifts and the characteristics and the qualities that they have. Give word to them over the kitchen table. Let your children hear you say these things. Pray for them. Those of you who are not married or single, pray for the women in our church. The church will thrive as the women thrive. Let's take a minute now and just ask God for grace, how this may apply to you. Perhaps it's a point of conviction leading to repentance. Perhaps it's a point of encouragement leading to thanksgiving. But let it be so 
for God's glory, and I'll pray for us in just a moment.